When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome along to the show, brought to you, as always, by the folks at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a man regarded as one of the greatest centres in rugby history. Tim Oren made 80 appearances for the Wallabies between 89 and 2000, winning the World Cup twice and catching the eye with his blistering speed, playmaking prowess and defensive discipline. Told he'd never play again after a gruesome knee injury halfway through his career, Tim would return to carve out a club and country career that's since seen him inducted into the Sport Australia and World Rugby Halls of Fame, while also being made a member of the Order of Australia. Tim Oren, welcome and thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, nice to be on the show and uh, yeah, Rugby World Cup just around the corner, so sort of exciting time of the year, isn't it? Especially after what happened to the Matildas and a little bit of momentum wearing that gold jersey, hopefully. Indeed. So we're just a couple of weeks out from that World Cup. I mean, how... How are we to view the prospects of this current group of Wallabies, do you think, Tim? Well, I think there's some momentum, which is great. Even though you look at, I uh, suppose, Eddie Jones, the new Wallaby coach, he's, um, you know, his first four test matches, um, four losses. So that's that's tough to take. But I think the the game against the All Blacks in Dunedin, that test match, um, we're up 17-0, 17-3, I think it was at half time. The All Blacks came back to win at the death. But... I think I saw enough there, saw enough for probably about 60 minutes of the game prior to that in the, at the MCG, 85,000 people watching the Wallabies and the All Blacks there that, to show that we're on the right path, but you've got to start to get some wins. And I think we've got the right players. There are now a lot of players that have come back from injury, um, long-term injury, whether that's Achilles ruptures or whether that's ACL injury. So a lot of those players are about third game, maybe fourth game back post that injury. So... Um, hopefully we can get to the World Cup and and you know get a little bit of momentum and show the you know the supporters that there is life left in the gold jersey. Just on Eddie, mad or genius? Oh, a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he's a wonderful coach. He's a very experienced coach and a very good coach. Um, I think the perception that people sometimes see, and whether that was you know, the press conference at the airport before the Wallabies hopped on the plane, I, <laughs> I don't think they need to be putting Eddie Jones up every single press conference. I think I, I think that was a mistake. I think what they should have put up was uh, Will Skelton as captain, Tate McDermott as vice captain at the airport, leading their team to another Rugby World Cup off to France. Uh, but we tend to put Eddie up. Eddie's in all the different ads. So there's a lot of hope on Eddie Jones as coach. So... Um, I think, you know, young boys and girls, they've, they've got to start to identify with who the Wallaby players are and start to get to know them rather than know the coach all the time. So, but Eddie, yeah, he's, um, he works very long hours, very particular about what side he wants and how to play the game. 
Uh, it's just whether the players can deliver on that promise that Eddie has. Loved his parting words before he flew out. Give yourself uh, some uppercuts. It wasn't too bad, was it? Um, so if yours were the halcyon days of rugby in this country, Tim, so broadly speaking, where do you think we're at right now in terms of not just the group of Wallabies are about to play in the World Cup, but the, the bigger picture of the game in this in this country? Well, I think we're probably sit where I'm, I think we're maybe seventh or eighth um, in the world now. And I think that's pretty fair. Um, but I think... Rugby World Cups allow you to play a different style of game, um, not to be shy, um, especially where we sit on the world rankings. And I I do think the game in Australia, um, the tough thing is financially and a broadcast revenue is not as where it should be. Uh, you know, I work for Stan Sport and Channel 9 and hopefully that can grow in a period of time too. Um, then you got this, program of after this rugby world cup 2025 british and irish lions come out for a full tour mm. then you have our home rugby world cup in 2027 the women's rugby world cup will be here in 2029 so that sort of runway over the next five to eight years allows the game to hopefully be financially secure for a long period of time at the moment it's pretty tough super rugby teams are really struggling to stay afloat um, that's the challenge um, but then you look at if the gold jersey is winning test matches, that then on a Sunday morning, you rock up to junior club rugby and all these young boys and girls are running around in the gold jersey. So that that's what you want to see. Um, but it's going to take a little bit more time. The, the grassroots part of the game um, is solid um, without being outstanding. You go to country areas, there's rugby league, there's Aussie rules, there's rugby. But the rugby club is the heart of the community. So whether that's in Narrabri or Gunnedah or whether that's in somewhere in, in Victoria or anywhere in, in Queensland, the rugby club's the heart of the community and um, we're going to try and keep it that way. Mm. So born in Sydney but raised north of the border in Queensland. Where, where was home as a kid, Tim? I don't tell too many people I was born in Sydney. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, had a couple of years in Sydney when I was a young fella and then uh, we grew up on a dairy farm uh, in a, outside a place called Gympie, which is about a couple of hours north yep. of Brisbane and uh, but most of my um, sort of junior sort of life was as a child was up, up in a, a place called Toowoomba, so about hour and a half west of Brisbane and went to school there and, and Dad um, was a member of Parliament for about 21 years up in Toowoomba. And, um, yeah, I think that's where, you know, gr- growing up on a dairy farm and then living on a farm, going to school, um, went to a school in Toowoomba and um, it was a lot of fun. And um, I think those days I was playing a lot of rugby league in my early years yeah. until I went to um, college. Yeah, it was rugby league. It was everything. You gave everything a crack, didn't you, in the sporting sense? Yeah, played a bit of cricket. I really enjoyed my cricket um, in my early days and um, played a lot of cricket with Jason Little, who, I, of course, then went and um, became yep. a centre partner at the Wallabies for a long period of time. We played club footy together and Queensland together and, and the Wallabies together. So we we um, went to two different schools in Toowoomba. and um, But, yeah, a um, little bit of athletics, uh, cricket, everything that was going, rugby league, and then, obviously, rugby union at school. Yeah, so tell us about school, Downlands College. I think your coach there was uh, the former England coach, the late John Elders. So what influence did he have on you in these early years, these formative years? I think he, he taught us how to enjoy the game of rugby by playing this open, expansive style of rugby and uh, and pretty much about not being shy on the football field and um, you know, he he was a former England coach. He was a former um, England schoolboys coach. And he just brought the joy to playing the game and um, kept it quite simple. But um, the skills that he taught us, you know, in a younger age, when we were under 13, under 14, to then 
um, express ourselves on the footy field. And uh, we, we enjoyed it. And I think we had some pretty good success when we were in our last year of high school in grade 12. We pretty sure were undefeated. We played about 20 odd sides. And <laughs> I think there was about four or five players who went on to play for the Wallabies or the Broncos or, or what have you. And um, that was, it was an enjoyable time. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, you mentioned Jason, and we'll come back to him later on. But there was a few future Wallabies in that team, wasn't it? It was, it was amazing that the, the amount of international players that came out of that schoolboy side. Yeah, it was funny that um, Brett Johnson, who played uh, a test for the Wallabies, but played for the Queensland, Brett Johnston um, as well. So Garrick Morgan, um, Peter Ryan, who played for, of course, the Brumbies, but also played for the Brisbane Broncos. Um, a lot of different players that, that went on um, post-school. So it was, a, it was a pretty decent team. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. Tim Oren's rise to world rugby prominence is up next. Stay with us. All right. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with dual World Cup winning Wallaby, Tim Horan. So, Tim, your debut comes against the All Blacks, 1989. I think you're 19 years of age. You picked it outside centre. So can you take us back? I mean, what level of trepidation, um, if any, lived inside you before your first game for the Wallabies? Yeah, it was a bit surreal because I hadn't played. Normally, you play for your state and then you get selected for your country. But I, I was um, playing club football, first year out of school. Um, then all of a sudden you get picked for the Wallabies. And I hadn't really heard much about the All Blacks. I'd heard they were a rugby team. Um, <laughs> I heard of this thing called the Harker. Didn't really understand what <laughs> yeah. that was. And in those days, you, you fly to Auckland and you get three days to prepare for a test match. These days you can have two weeks. But the, the laws back then was you're allowed three days before a test and you get to Auckland, you train hard for three days, and all of a sudden you play this match in front of 45,000 people at Eden Park and didn't really know what to expect. And uh, we got reasonably close to the All Blacks that day. And But just to watch the Harkers, to stand in front of the Harkers and realise um, the aura that the All Blacks had and still have um, when they do the Harker, the black jersey, um, it was a pretty um, surreal experience. And I was thinking, well, I've played one test, that'll do me, That's that's enough. And... Uh, yeah, after the game, my opposite number, a guy called Smoking Joe Stanley yeah. came into the dressing room and he wanted to swap jerseys. I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, he walks in, takes his jersey off, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm only going to get one Wallaby jersey. I don't want to really swap it. And he said, no, Tim, it's your first test match. Keep your Wallaby jersey, but here's my all-black jersey, uh, and sat down and had a couple of beers with him. So wow. I, he did that. Whilst I could hear the All Blacks, you know, singing different songs in the in the dressing room next door with the Bledisloe Cup, so it was a pretty surreal moment. Amazing, amazing. There was a game shortly thereafter against France, I think, where you scored maybe your first two tries in international rugby. But, and I know this has become the stuff of legend, perhaps. But can you just shed some light on this mock barroom ceremony that you, that supposedly took place with you and your mate Jason? Did this actually happen? And what do you make of the coverage of it thereafter? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was. A bit different because we so we we won the first test match um, in Strasbourg uh, against France, a, a cracked French team who, 
you know, had the likes of Philip Sellar and Frank Manel, all these beautiful names, um, Serge Blanco at fullback, and they were one of the best teams in the world. So we beat them um, with a young, inexperienced Wallaby team. And we come to the dressing room after the game. My mum was on the tour and, and she, you know, in those days, the parents would come to the dressing room. And, and Peter Fitzsimons, who um, played a bit of time in France, he said, this is... Uh, tradition what you got to do is we never want you and Jason to go to rugby league sign with rugby league because a lot of those in those early days you were getting calls all the time and yeah so he um so both Jason and I had to um put our hands on my mum's head and Peter Fitzsimons said something in French which meant we'll swear on our mother's head that you'll never ever go to rugby league and <laughs> etc and that went for about oh, 30 odd seconds and we didn't think much of it, and um, then it got it got blew up a little bit at post that. But yeah, <laughs> luckily both Jason and I were probably pretty close a few times going to rugby league, but in the end we both didn't. It's amazing, yeah. It did become must have been a big story at the time because there's still a lot of documentation written about that uh, that supposed ceremony, as, as it were. But uh, the '99 World Cup in England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and France. Then Tim, so the the semi final against the All Blacks lives on for many. Um, as does that try, that try, you know, Liner's chip, Campisi's gather, the evasion and the over-the-shoulder for Horan. Far Jones digs it out, Liner, the chip ahead, Horan's going to chase that, so's Campisi. Campisi gets it in his hands, Campisi, David Campisi dodging both ways and feeding Tim Horan. Horan to score. Tim Horan scores for Australia, a marvellous try. And it all came from that man, David Campesi, yet again. Does it does it come to mind easily? Is it one of the most replayed tries I reckon in Wallaby history? Yeah, it was. Um, it's probably the best forty minutes that the Wallabies had played. I think in a long period of time. That first forty minutes against the All Blacks semi final, David Campesi was on fire, and he Campo was a wonderful player, and he he really helped put rugby on the map in Australia and. Yeah, Michael Liner chipped over. It sat up for David Campisi, and and I just trailed him and mm. followed. I was screaming every time he sort of let, looked left, looked right, and then I knew it, Campo hated getting tackled. So I knew when the All Blacks players were about to tackle, I knew he was going to chuck the ball somewhere and chuck it away. <laughs> so luckily, I was just in behind him to pick the ball up. And it's amazing. You, 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 there's different photos I've seen of when I sort of finally get around and put the ball down of uh, at Lansdowne Road in Dublin. To seeing people like cheering and just screaming and um, and just the different photos of reactions of people when that happened, it was a amazing experience. And um, yeah, the side was was pretty switched on that time. That's Lansdowne Road. The final though is England at Twickenham, so right into the Lions Den. You're three nil up. It's about half an hour into the game. It's tight and it's tense. Now, England fly half Rob Andrew hoists the kick into your 22. You're there. Rory Underwood's coming the other way. Do you remember what happens next vividly? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I remember there was a guy, I think it was number six for England, a guy called Mickey Skinner, and he tried to take my head off yeah, <laughs> as right. I caught the ball. And I sort of somehow bounced around from him. I looked up, and all of a sudden, there's about 70 metres in front of me to the try line down the sideline. So I... I grabbed the ball and just ran as quick as I could and you, you felt your legs getting heavier after about 20 or 30 metres and uh, managed to sort of grub a kick the ball ahead and the ball went out about five metres out before the England line and I'm thinking, we're a chance here. And we scored a, the only try of the game, I'm pretty sure it yep. was, yep. Um, off that line out. Ewan McKenzie and Tony Daly, both our front rowers, 
um, drove over the line to score. And Underwood there, Horan having to jump for it. And he's away, Horan down the wing. The cover's across. It's still dangerous though with Webb going back and play there going right from deep in 122 to the other. And Opehengawi gathering it in two-handed. The Australians trying to roll it off the side. England in trouble here. It's a try. And is it Opehengawi still holding on to it? And up with the ball, it looks as if it's Ewan McKenzie, the prop. Um, but it was still a long way to go in the game. But yeah, those little moments, you, you remembered little parts of the game. And I, I don't think I've ever gone back and watched the whole match. Um, but there's certain parts of the game, whether it was John Eels tackling Rob Andrew mm. late in the game to save a try and little moments in the game that was pretty special. And But to win that World Cup, to, to sit in the, the Clawfoot bars in Twickenham in the dressing room, drinking out of the William Webellis trophy was pretty special. I don't think at the time we didn't realise how important it was for Australian sport or let alone rugby but until we got back to Australia. Yeah, amazing to think that's two years after your debut. You score four tries in the tournament. Next thing you know, you, as you say, you're drinking out of the Webb Ellis. Amazing. So the Bledisloe Cup of 92, the next year on, I think it's been a six-year winless run leading up, probably nothing compared to today's drought, it must be said. But but every game's in Australia that year, which was what used to happen, wasn't it? It would be three over there or two over there, three over here and so on and so on. But... um. Uh, was that how did you was that the better format do you think I mean it's no longer that way and it it would give the home team a real sense of advantage obviously wouldn't it something to build on yeah it was great I mean the those test matches don't happen much anymore we have three test match series they're coming back into world rugby now and you know post this rugby world cup about to kick off now is that I think we're playing Wales in three test matches next year you've got British and Irish Lions in 2025 three test matches um, and I think that's – it just gives people around Australia, whether, whether the test matches are either Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane or Perth gets test matches, it, it gives that real um, series feel. And I think that's what rugby's been missing for a long time. So success in the Bledders, obviously, 92, 94, 98, and you were in the side that retained it in, in 99. I mean, aside from the World Cup, is this as big as it gets? For, for And is it still the case? The Bledders loads the next cab off the rank? Yeah, I think because we haven't had the Bledders load for, I think it's 21 yeah. years now, it's um, – you know, there's, there's young kids at school who've never seen the Bledisloe Cup. Um, so we need to be able to win some trophies and win some big ones. And that's, I think when Eddie Jones started, you know, I said that what Eddie's got to do in the first two years, he's got to win a Bledisloe Cup. And if he does that, you take the Bledisloe Cup around to clubs, schools, um, areas where, in, in the country areas, where people could actually see a very big trophy and realise what rugby means and what it stands for. But... Yeah, to beat the All Blacks, um, you know, we can beat the All Blacks at the moment probably one to maybe two times out of ten. So we've got to try and increase that to four or five times out of ten mm. whenever we play the All Blacks. And we were pretty close in Dunedin, but we, um, we've we just got this younger team now that is just getting a bit more experience. So I don't think we're that far off, but it's a wonderful um, – to be able to – and I remember in, in 1998 we – we beat the All Blacks um, in the second Test match. We'd, we'd won in in Melbourne, uh, and then the I think Matty Burke scored twenty four points in Melbourne against the All Blacks. A couple of weeks later, we go to Christchurch and win in Christchurch, and be able to to go back to the hotel. I think it was the Novotel back in Christchurch, and and hand the Bledisloe Cup filled with beer around the foyer of the hotel 
where there would have been probably 350 Aussie supporters with scarves and jerseys, and they all got a chance to drink out of the Bledisloe Cup, which was special. And for those who travelled over, it was a wonderful experience to be able to see that what the Bledisloe Cup means to supporters. Yeah, these are the memories you hang on to, no doubt. We're with Wallaby icon Tim Oren on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals at Celebrating Lives. The gruesome injury that threatened Tim's career is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is two-time Rugby World Cup winner and Wallaby legend Tim Horan. Tim, let's go back to 94. So the Super 10 tournament of that year. Your Queensland side made the final against South Africa's Natal. Now, actually, just before we get to it, did you decide, I mean, I know you took the oath, did you decide to switch codes and take up league before this final? Well, I think I'd verbally agreed to um, maybe go to the NRL. With um, I was talking to the North Sydney Bears. And I was, you know, I'd won a Bledisloe Cup, won a World Cup, and you know the side was going really well. And I was thinking, well, and we obviously the game was amateur yeah. for us. And I'm thinking I had a young um, family, and I was thinking, well, you know, I was probably halfway through my career. What do I do? So I'd had a couple of just discussions with the North Sydney Bears about potentially joining them. And I said, guys, let me get back from the Super 10 final in South Africa. Uh, I, I, you know, verbally said, I'm pretty keen to, to come across. Uh, and then the knee the knee injury happened in the match. And I came back from that and we were speaking to the president of um, North Sydney Bears. And I said, guys, I've been told I probably won't play rugby again, let alone sort of get back. So listen, that's just call the, call the show off. And they said, no, we'd still like to, you know, have you in a year or two's time. And I said, guys, it's too hard. I need to concentrate on on getting myself back. So uh, I was pretty close to going. I reckon if I hadn't injured my knee, mm. I, I probably would have gone to rugby league only because, you know, I thought I had probably an early capacity of another six years maybe, and I needed to probably, you know, provide something to the family at some stage. Jeez, these are sliding doors moments. So th- this mm. horrific injury in the final over there in South Africa, now your knee was... Well, your knee was decimated. Now, I've read many versions of this, but you might be better just to let you describe the full body count, so to speak, of the injury that you suffered. Yeah, it was funny. So I, I propped to make a tackle, um, and I remember my left knee, it, it had a big pop, uh, which is your cruciate ligament. Um, that went, and about a second later, I had my right arm out to t- tackle a guy who had stepped inside of me from um, the Natal Sharks, they were called, in the final. And as, as my knee popped... About a half a second later, he hit my right arm, which spun my whole body backwards. And then the more damage went. Uh, so I virtually dislocated my femur um, from the, the two lower bones and my kneecap um, dislocated as well. So I had cruciate ligament, ant- so anterior cruciate, posterior cruciate, um, medial ligament as well went. So I had three of the four ligaments all ruptured. Um, the fourth ligament, um, I think it was strained dislocated kneecap that was my kneecap if, if you can feel your kneecap now all listeners and it wobbles a bit in front mine was behind my hamstring but, so that's where it, what, that's where it, it ended up it had gone around to the back of your leg went around the back of my leg what? um so that was that was the painful thing putting that back in on the field uh the doctor had to put that back in the field and then the main part also the damage um on the joint so i knocked a lot of bone off the joint and 
And I remember then the only good part about, about the injury was, so the next, so we won the final, which was fantastic. Um, but Jason Little had a similar injury, probably not as bad, but we both go off the field. We win the trophy. It's fantastic. Super 10 final for Queensland Reds. And then we both go to hospital and we had to fly out the next day. And because we had to put our legs, both legs were in plaster. I think it's the first time I've sat in first class on the way home because we couldn't fit in economy. So that was probably the only good thing about it. It was a long trip home from Durban to Johannesburg, Johannesburg, Perth, Perth back to Brisbane, uh, and a lot of pain on the way home to, to see what the real damage was when I got back to Brisbane and saw Dr. Peter Myers, the orthopedic surgeon. Just incredible that you and Jason, you meet 13 or whatever on a, in a rep, rugby league rep tour. You joined at the hip all the way through. You even get got injured together as well, which is just amazing. Um, and so yours was obviously uber serious. So you were told, I'm not sure if it was Peter that told you, but was all the advice you got was that this was it? You couldn't come back from this? Yeah, he, um, Dr. Peter Myers. So I got back to Brisbane. He had a look. Um Went into an arthroscopy, which means you just go in and have a look around mm. to see what the damage was with the knee. And he came out of that. And I remember as I got out of recovery, he said, Tim, it's um, I've seen a lot of knee injuries. And this is probably the, the second most damaged knee that I've seen. Another one was in a car accident. Um, and he said, Tim, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you this up front. He said, I don't think you'll ever play rugby at the level that you're currently playing at. He said, you might get back to be able to play like a reserve grade or second grade. He said, my my biggest challenge now is to get your leg um, working again, get make sure your leg can straighten and, and bend in, you know, 12, 15 months' time. And if I can get you back to walking and maybe jogging, that's my goal. He said, I just don't think you'll have much of a chance to play rugby again. So Crushing. And I remember at that, that, that stage, Jason was in the opposite hospital bed on the other side. And it was six, I remember it was 6.35 a.m. in the morning and it was my 18th birthday because on the 14th of May was the injury. The 18th of May was that morning after I had the arthroscopy. And I remember Jason was eating a, a supreme pizza at 6.30 in the morning, um, listening to what Peter Myers, the doctor, was saying to me. And um, yeah, it was pretty, but it was emotional. It was sad. I was trying to think, and I wasn't, probably comprehending too much of what Peter was saying. I, I just thought, I just got to get my knee right to get back to a normal life. And what does that look like? Wow. Amazing. So stubborn determination to get back though. I mean, I imagine the rehab was grueling, but how stubborn are you as a human? Yeah, I think, I think most people would say I'm pretty determined to, to, to do things in life, but yeah, I, well, I, I was living in Brisbane, so I moved to um, the northern beaches of Sydney for six to eight months to work with our Wallaby physiotherapist guy called uh, Greg Craig, who, um, you know, has done so many rehabs for so many people over a long period of time. So I lived with um, Craigie for about two months. We then, luckily, through um, Wallaby supporters, I had a, a house given to me down at, um, at Palm Beach, um, right on the water and to be able to be there for six to eight months. And I went to physio twice a day. I'd be there at seven in the morning, um, finish at two in the afternoon. I'd get two hours break. I'd get, then go back to Greg Craig's house at 4.30 in the afternoon for another two-hour session. You'd finish that at 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. You'd go home, you'd have something to eat, you'd go to bed. And that happened. We did that for seven days straight for two months straight just to get the knee moving again after the, after the major operation. So... It was just something I had to do. And I, was, I wasn't I was thinking anything about playing sport again. It was about 
can I walk down to the park with my daughter, Lucy, who was a couple of years old, yeah. um, and push her on the swings? That's all I wanted to do. Yeah, you did that, and you did more. Amazingly, you got yourself to the 95 World Cup in South Africa. You missed the opener against the hosts, I think, but you featured thereafter, including the quarterfinal loss to England. But how underdone were you, Tim? Well, I think, and you look at the Wallaby players now, like Asamu Karevi and, um, you know, Rob Liotta. Um, Rob Liotta had a ruptured Achilles. Taniela Tupo ruptured Achilles. Asamu Karevi, ACL. And I reckon it takes you probably six months post you being totally right to play again to feel like you're back in the swing. Because it, you're, you're getting in different positions that you haven't been in, whether it's stepping or whether it's pushing off those um, damaged ligaments that you previously had. So... I reckon I was probably 80%, yeah, maybe 85% at that rugby world cup and um but it was but it took me that year of the, the rest of the year of 1995 to feel like once I got to 1996 that was then you know 18 months to 22 months post the injury and I, I felt then I was I was probably back to being close to 100%. Gee, plenty happened that year in that World Cup, didn't it? That was obviously Jonah Lomu becomes a global superstar and the All Blacks initially anyway claimed they were poisoned before the final. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one said they just weren't good enough. Um, but now nah, it was interesting because it was amazing to see what Nelson Mandela did with that Rugby World Cup and how uh, he use sport, but use rugby to unite the country. It was incredible yep. how he'd planned it with Francois Pinot, the, the coach of the, uh, sorry, the captain of the Springboks and how they spoke about it two or three years prior to 95 World Cup and how <clears throat> they could use sport to help unite that country of South Africa. And it was amazing. And it was it was the right way to, to see that moment of Nelson Mandela with the number six Springbok jersey on with him and Francois Pinot holding up that Rugby World Cup was one of the most iconic moments that we've seen, not just in rugby, but in sport globally. Uh, disappointed he didn't get a, jo- a role as an extra in Invictus then? I mean, we could have seen him in the background at least. <laughs> I know. Well, Matt Damon was a bit small to play with Francois Pinot, wasn't he? Matt Damon could have played you, to be honest. I reckon there's some similarities there. I, I could see that happening. Yeah, that should have been. Well, we, we got knocked out in the quarterfinals. So I think if we went a little bit deeper <laughs> in the competition, we might have got a shot. We might have got a roll. Hey, yeah, uh, you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tovin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. There's more to come with Tim Horan after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. They are a family-owned business, have been since 1934. We're joined today by arguably the greatest Senate rugby union has ever seen, Tim Horan. So, Tim, the 99 World Cup in Wales. Uh, History says the Wallabies just peaked at the perfect time. So much so, in the opening pool game against Romania, you scored in what, 92 seconds? Yeah, it was um, Yeah, it was incredible. Well, and then post that, at the dressing shed, it was quite weird because well, we won the match and and uh, an Irish guy walks into the dressing shed oh, is, is, in his Irish accent and said, oh, is Tim Oren here? And I said, <laughs> oh, no, this is a drug test and how will I go? And and then he walks in and said, Tim, um, I'm the, the, the sales manager for Guinness. And he said, you've scored the fastest try in the Rugby World Cup. The first person to score a try quicker 
than it takes to pour a perfect pint of Guinness, which is apparently 119 seconds, and I scored a try in 114 seconds <laughs> against the powerhouse of Romania um, from the kickoff. So yes. uh, it was a year's supply of Guinness oh. and and 10,000 pounds that we donated to charity back in in Brisbane. We had we had three very premature babies, uh, so the Royal Hospital in in Brisbane we donated the pounds back to them, which was about 25,000 Aussie dollars back in those days, which wow. I think helped bought a humidity crib back there for premature babies, which was great to be able to do that. But I was probably I was probably more worried about what does a year's supply of Guinness mean? So if you remember back in the early days, you'd get these large cans of Guinness with a little marble in the bottom of them. Yeah, little widgets. So it was, that's it. Yeah, it was 365 of those cans. And, and I said, listen, um, I drink more than one can a day, you know. You know, so he just laughed at his <laughs> So in the end we converted the cans of Guinness, the three hundred and sixty five cans of Guinness to about um ten fifty litre kegs of Guinness that got delivered to my house in Brisbane and we shared it around a few players when we got back. I was gonna ask you how that worked. Did you actually take receipt of it? And you did. Uh, I did, you. yeah. I don't think we I don't think I shared it around as much as I probably could have, but there was a couple of um, engagement parties. There was uh, Johnny Eels used to have a, a Saturday betting um, club that we had a few um, pints of Guinness there at that day. But it, it was just it was a great gimmick, and um, yep. I think there's been a few quicker tries scored since then. Clever, clever marketing by one of the major sponsors, of course, in Guinness. So the semi final of that World Cup was against South Africa. Now, Tim, individually for you, what was your preparation like for this semi final? Yeah, it was funny because um, we had a day off on the Thursday. We had a team run on the Friday and you play the game on the Saturday afternoon at Twickenham in, in London. And um, Wednesday afternoon, the coach said, listen, we've got tomorrow off. Uh, everyone can go and do their own thing. If you want to go stay with friends or you want to go shopping, you've got some time. But I want you got to be um, switched back on 9am on Friday morning for breakfast and then a team run. So, so my wife was with me. So we ended up going to see some good friends of ours in London. Um, went and had dinner with them on the Wednesday night. Um, by lunchtime Thursday, we caught the train back to the hotel. And and just as we were about to hop on the train, as my mate dropped me off to the train station with my wife and I, he said, oh, Tim, I forgot to tell you, my daughter, and she was about six and a half, seven at the time, she came back from school yesterday and she's been vomiting ever since and um, she's got a very bad stomach bug. And I went, right, I've just hugged her and kissed her and said, and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is not going to end well. So by the time I got off the train, as I'm walking from the train station back to the hotel, I start vomiting. Oh. Um, so I get back, um, couldn't couldn't go to dinner. So the Wednesday, the Thursday night, nonstop all night, vomiting and um, coming out of all areas. And so Friday morning, get up, um, can't go and do the team run. Feel like I'm about to sort of pull out of the whole match, the semi final against the Springboks. Um, Friday afternoon, I'm getting injections from the doctor to stop me vomiting, and I thought this is not going to stop. So, but then I remember I said John Eels came and you know opened opened the door about five centimeters to talk to me on the Friday night. He said, "Tim, listen, we'll give you till ten o'clock Saturday morning, and this is the day of the game." I said, "Yep, great." Um, lay in bed, hadn't eaten anything, so I got up about nine o'clock on the Saturday morning day of the game. Um, went and had a piece of toast. Um, went and put my boots on. I remember going out to, there was a little croquet field next to the hotel, put my boots on, had a little jog for five minutes. I remember Rod McQueen, the coach, and Eelsie, the captain, coming across. It was about five past 10 in the morning. And they said, Tim, how do you feel? What do you think? And I said, no, I'm fine. I'll be totally fine. Um, I felt like I hadn't eaten anything, hadn't drunk. So I thought I've got to get some water into me. 
And then I didn't want – the team obviously knew I was a little bit crook, but I didn't want to make any excuses. So I said, it's a World Cup semi-final. I've got to be there for the team, but I don't want to let them down. So I don't – if I'm playing, I'm playing the whole match. So um, on the bus, I wasn't nervous for the match because I hadn't – didn't expect to play. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was a great match, great weekend for, for rugby where, you know, the Wallabies, we beat the Springboks on the Saturday. And then all of a sudden – the All Blacks get beaten by France on the Sunday. It was probably one of the best weekends of rugby that I think the World Cup has seen. You played, and I know you'll be modest here, but you put in a blinder, and it went to extra time as well. 27-21, you got, you got through it. And not only did you get through it, but you performed, oh, I don't know, you tell us, to, to your optimum. Yeah, well, as I said, it's probably because I wasn't that, I wasn't nervous. I didn't think I was going to mm. play the game, and... And all of a sudden, you know, there was some great players around us. You know, George Gregan, what he did at Scrum Half, Steve Larkin, the, the field goal in extra time, incredible, the only field goal he's ever kicked. And I just think we had a very good um, patterns of play that probably just suited my style in that match. And, yeah, it was incredible. And you get those moments, you know, in your life where things just start to open up. And uh, it was a wonderful team performance that uh, would go down and probably one of the best games the Wallabies have played. And a week later, you thrash France 35-12 to, to win the Webb Ellis Trophy and actually become the first nation to win two World Cups. And you are named, forget the Guinness, you are named player of the tournament. I mean, is this a career high for you, Tim? One of only three players remaining from 91 at the time, the horrible injury at the peak of your powers, the virus we spoke of, and then the ultimate prize and the individual award, while that's not what you play for, to go with it. Yeah, it was, um, you know, you always look at the team. We had a wonderful team that, um, and I always talk about, we had so much trust in the players around us. So whether that was someone throwing the line out, whether that was John Eels in the second row, whether it was the defensive line, or we just had so much trust. And I think you get any organisation, any business, any sporting team, if you can have trust in the players next to you that they're going to do their job, don't worry about their job and um, and worry about your own. It was pretty, it was a unique, unique experience. And we had we had a lot of people that didn't play uh, much rugby in that Rugby World Cup either. There was a lot of players that never really kitted up to go and play. So they were just as important as the players. And it was special. We, we, when we won that um, game against France at Millennium Stadium in Cardiff in, in Wales, it was just a we, – we got the, the World Cup from the Queen – and we all, and after about five or six of us came through, you would hand the, you'd hold the cup up from Her Majesty the Queen, you'd hand it back to her, she'd hand it to the next person in the line as you came up on the stage. And I remember saying to John Eel, said, Eelsie, we need to get the cup, put it on the ground when everyone's finished and sing the national anthem around it. And it wasn't just the team. We had the bus driver, um, the couple of masseurs that was with us, the baggage handlers, because everyone was part of that larger team. And that was pretty special for everyone to be feel like they were definitely part of that team. It was a pretty special time. Awesome. And you donated that prize money to charity too, didn't you? For the for the player of the tournament? Yeah, yeah. It, um I think it was um from Famous Grouse, which is a um, you know, an alcoholic drink over in the UK. And so they nice little trophy, but then there was some uh, I think it might have been another ten thousand pounds that uh yeah, we wanted to set up so I went to school in Toowoomba, so we wanted to set up there was a a little cancer ward in the Toowoomba hospital and we set up uh, a little room where the kids, when they weren't getting treated, um, so back in those days, this is a while ago now, this is 99, that um, PlayStation games first came out and we put a, you know, there was a plasma TV, cost you a lot of money back then. So we put a couple of TVs in, um, some PlayStation games and, and consoles that 
the kids in between, you know, a long stint at hospital, they could have a little room, um, they could get little games room they could go to and, and experience it. Oh, good on you, mate. That is awesome. So your role now behind the microphone for Stan Sport, I mean, it's much easier up in the box, I'm sure. D- does that shape your commentary or do you still need to be critical? Is it that search for balance, I suppose? Yeah, it's been um, it's been a great journey. Like since I've uh, retired from the game, I've been in commentary um, for 21 years straight. So I had eight years with Channel Seven, which was fantastic, and yep. learned a lot from Gordon Bray, who was our main commentator. But also did a lot of work with Bruce McAvaney and uh, what a what a person Bruce is. And he taught me about not not just about um, how you how you can commentate in sport, but the research that you have to do that people don't see. Um, and so you you can research, and I saw Bruce's notes, the amount of notes that he had, he probably only used 10 to 20% of the notes that he had for test matches. Yeah. So that was great to work there. Then, uh, of course, um, Fox Sports for 10 years, which was wonderful to be able to experience Rugby World Cups and Super Rugby Finals and work with people like Greg Clark and Kernsey and George Grieg and John Eels, all those ex-players that we all work together um, on Fox Sports. And then now with Stan Sports been great for the last three years with obviously Channel 9 as well, that to be able to get the game a bit more free to wear, which has been really important. So, yeah, you, I think you try and mould your commentary on what you've learned from playing, but also um, what players are thinking and, um, mm. you know, what – um, the styles of play they're playing, but also I try and commentate to um, someone who uh, maybe a single mum watching in Toowoomba. She's sixty years of age. She watches all different sport. How do I make it a bit easier for her to watch the game of rugby? So if she's got a remote control and she's sitting at home with a glass of red, watching a little bit of AFL, a little bit of NRL, and she flicks across to a Wallaby game or a Super Rugby game. How can we hold her? for an extra couple of minutes and make the game a bit more uh, watchable for her and she gets something out of it that she didn't know prior to watching it. Tim Oren, thanks so much for joining us today, mate. I mean, your career certainly lives on so fondly in the minds of so many. Team success, individual success, halls of fame galore. It was a sparkling career that you refused to let injury cut short. So we really appreciate you joining it with us, sharing it with us. Yeah, no, it's been great fun and uh, the journey hopefully continues at the Rugby World Cup and, it's going to be early in the morning for a lot of fans to get up on uh, and watch on Stan Sport, but hopefully the Wallaby Gold jersey can do as all the supporters proud. And I know there's a lot of people from Australia heading over to to watch the Rugby World Cup, and uh, which that's you know Rugby World Cup's all about the fans for me, and uh, it'd be great to be able to hopefully. Bring it all live back to anyone in Australia who's not heading over there. If you're not heading over there, you can catch all the action from this year's 2023 Rugby World Cup on the home of rugby stand sport. Every match streaming ad free. It's live. It's on demand in 4K Ultra HD from September 9. Visit stand.com.au forward slash sport. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.